Uh, hey, welcome everybody, 715, I'm AJ. Uh, we are gonna continue our series on Romans 8. So we're picking up Romans 8, verse 24. Let's jump right into it and see what God has for us tonight. This is Romans 8, verse 24 through 27. It's our passage for tonight. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Father God, we just invite your presence into this space tonight that we could hear from you what you are ministering to us through this text and in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we are like cusping over the ridge of this chapter and we're beginning a downhill trajectory into Paul's final concluding point that he's making in Romans 8. In the first 17 verses, what Pastor Corey, Pastor Sean, and myself preached over the first few weeks of this series uh, secures us in what God has done, in our identity in him, in who he is and who we now are. We are secured first in our status. We're no longer condemned. It's beautiful. We're secondly secured in God's work for us, that we no longer have to walk by the flesh, but we can walk by the Spirit. We're secured thirdly in our belonging to God, that we are now in the Spirit with Him. We are fourth secured in our adoption. We are fifth secured in our identity. And we are sixth secured in our future inheritance of what God has for us beyond this moment here today. And then in verse 18, we come slamming, crashing into reality of the present moment and the futility and the heartache and the groaning and the burden that is creation and reality as we know it. We are rooted in our identity, but we must confront the reality of the moment that we're in. And Pastor Stephen did such a beautiful job illustrating and drawing out for us the futility of creation. That even the beautiful rivers that God has given us for life and water and fishing and all of this are unswimmable. And any fish in it are unconsumable. Creation is futile. Man's actions have poured out over it and caused it to be less than God's dear purpose for it. And it says that all of creation groans. But Stephen left us with this beautiful picture that we ought to have, this picture of glory, the glory that is to come. And Paul is always tethering us to this future inheritance, this, this thing that is to come, the glorification of our lives that is yet before us. And so what do we do when we have a, have a picture of glory, yet a vision of reality? We wait eagerly in hope for the future glory. That's what we do. And this is the moment that we find ourselves in. In this chapter of Romans 8, um, it's been like drinking from a well of cool, fresh water for me as we've studied it, as we've walked through it. I hope it has been for you. It's been one of our intents that this is just a, a life-giving study that you can just soak 
in the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ for you. But the reality of the present age that we live in is that we are in a spiritual war. Whether you like that or not, and whether you've heard that language or not, whether you're willing to confront that reality or not, it is true. We are in a spiritual war. There is a dark force of evil that is working against us to tempt us into sin, to pull us away from God, to divide our relationships, to bring chaos, confusion, separation, isolation, and frustration to your daily life. And you can, I would encourage you to just call that what that is and name that for what it is and engage yourself in the battle. Because Roman 8 is a passage that gives us, I mean, it's an arsenal of weaponry to fight this battle. Because the devil will tell you what you're not, but Jesus will remind you who you are in him. There is no condemnation in you. So I don't care what the devil has told you about what you lack. I see what you, I see what you are. So we now um, face the reality of creation And yet we are now cusping over this hill and we're sliding downwards into Paul's final conclusion, which is answering the question, how can any Christian go through this life with confidence and assurance, confidence and assurance that all that we're going through is worth it? How can we live the Christian life with a sense of confidence and assurance that what we're going through is worth it? And the question that I, he's, he's going to pull that out for us over the next two weeks as we conclude. But the other question I want to look at for us tonight is, is the title of the message is, is, where is God in this? Where is God in all of this? Because the Christian life is one that should be marked by hope. Remember the picture of glory? We have hope for what is to come. We don't leave, live constrained to the present. So we live in hope yet confronted with the reality of the present day and age. But it's in this hope that we were saved. It's where we pick up tonight. Now, in what hope were we saved? Remember last time I preached, I talked about Romans being, think of it as an orchestra, as a symphony, a symphony where we're calling back and we're going forward. And there's little, little phrases here that remind us of long passages before. And, and here's another one. What is the hope? Well, Paul has elaborated the hope in Romans 5, verse 1 and 2, when he says this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because when God is revealed in his full glory, so will we. And so we rejoice. It is that hope that we were saved. That who we were isn't who we always have to be. That what we've done doesn't have to mark us forever. That what's been done to us doesn't have to be the legacy that we take on into the future. That although this life is painful and hurts and is marked with frustration, doesn't mean that there is not freedom and hope for you in the future. This is the hope that we were saved in. That if we would walk by the Spirit according to the will and the Word of God, there is more and there is better and there's a better version of this reality waiting for us by the Word and the will of God. And hope is not something you see, 
but hope is something you expect. Your hope is tied to your faith, right? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's what we hope for. How do you know the evidence of what I hope for? You see it in the actions and the faith that I have today. Now, Paul makes it clear to say that hope is not something that you can see. So if I go like, um, I hope there's tea in this. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it. So am I really hoping that there's tea in it? I'm not really hoping. I know it. I can see it. The word for seas in the Greek is blepo. This is a fun one. I had to include it just because it's fun to say. Let's all say blepo. Blepo. Yeah, that's so good. Blepo means to see. It means to perceive it visually. It also carries with it the connotation that you understand. You understand what's coming. You understand what's happening before you. So I visually perceive the tea. So I don't hope. I don't hope for the tea. I see the tea. And this is one of those notes that it's kind of, I don't know, did Paul have to write that? Isn't that pretty self-explanatory? Is it? I don't, I don't know. I think it's one of those theological truths that we go, oh, yeah, yeah, no, I got that for sure. Easy. Let's move on. But then we reflect on our actions. Because how many of us are not stepping out and walking and acting in faith for the explicit reason that we don't know how it'll turn out? If I knew how it would turn out, then I would go. But I don't know how it's going to turn out, so I'm going to wait. Your hope is tied to your faith. What are, you, what are you expecting is going to happen? If you can see the way before you, if you can see how the conversation is going to play out, if you see how the decision to move or to change jobs is going to unfold before you, there's no faith required. There's no hope placed in God. You're just you're following a, something that's, that's, that's been explained to you. But that is not what marks the Christian life, that we follow a playbook, that the way before us is clear. Like, do we ever see it? Like, have you ever, I don't know, think back on your, have you ever fully seen it lay out before you? Or haven't you always had to go, I'm going to put a little bit of faith on this, and I'm just going to trust God a little bit for it. And I think it makes sense. I still got my pros and my cons list, but I'm just going to step. And that's what God calls us to do. Whatever our hope is, whatever our faith is in, there's a point where we've got we've to step. And sometimes we do it. We go like, God, I've got the faith for it. Like, I believe you. I hope it's going to turn out the way you said it's going to turn out. So, God, I step. And you're like, well, I did the obedient thing, but I don't see it yet. God, I, I had the conversation. I confronted them. I restored the relationship. I trusted you to go out beyond my depth, beyond my measure, beyond what I could see. God, I did it. Is anybody there in that moment right now? You've stepped. And you're going like, hey, God, you better hold up your end of the bargain here, man. Because I am out here. I am out here. I did what you said to do. What do, we, what do we do in this moment? We wait with patience. Because if you hope for what you can see, you're not really hoping. But those who hope in what they do not see, they wait for it with patience. And patience is a uniquely Christian virtue. It's something that the Christian church, 
the word of God introduces as a virtue for us. Think of Greek virtues, wisdom, courage, moderation, justice, these noble, high, lofty, good virtues. You would associate those with like Greek culture, Roman virtue, knowledge, power, right? But, but patience, patience. Yet so much of the Christian life is marked by us in a season of waiting and waiting patiently. And so much of us denying ourselves to believe for what God can and will and just might do for us in the future. Why is this important? This is important because the God of this age, which is to say the devil, the adversary, the enemy that is working against you, he does not hold virtue Patience as a virtue. The God of this age, his motto was more like, if you feel it, you deserve it. You go and do it and you go and get it. If you want it, you ought to have it. The fact that you even have an urge means you go for that, man. Satisfy yourself. Fulfill your desires and fulfill it now. The fact that you're tempted, doesn't that mean that that you want it? So you should have it. Go get it. Yet the, yet the word of the Christian life is my flesh pulls me from God. And I need to overcome my flesh to walk by the spirit of God in a path of righteousness. But the God of this age is always going to pull us towards self-gratification. Or if you're in pain and you're going, God, I just want it to end. I need out now. I don't have any more in me. I got to get out. You got to end it. Take it from me. And yet long-suffering and bearing one another's burdens and patience is a fruit of the Spirit. And so what do we do when we have a picture of glory yet we're confronted with the reality of creation before us? We have hope for what could be, but we sit in the tension of now as we keep one eye on hope and we hold steadfast in patience and we wait and we wait and waiting is hard. You guys, waiting is the worst. Waiting and hope is like so much harder. Because to wait is one thing. You wait in a doctor's office. Sometimes you have to wait for a while. Whatever, we can wait. That's fine. It's the worst. But now you're telling me I have to be hopeful? I have to be expectant? I have to be excited? I have to be believing for something to come that whole time? That is so hard. There's two things I think that help us, though. There's two things I think that help us. One I just spend a one, a one minute on because Stephen talked about it last week. The first is the first fruits. It's the evidence. It's the little momentary tastes. It's the glimpses of the goodness and the glory that is to come. Because although creation is futile and it's not living up to its full potential and we got rivers you can't swim in, like, did you see the sunset tonight? I don't know where you live out in Gainesville. We get some good sunsets. And it was purple and orange and yellow. And it was was glorious. And we get two of those a day. And you see, like in 2020, did you hear when, when all, you know, all, everyone was in quarantine and home, no one was going out to shops and centers. Did you see the footage of animals that just moved back into like city centers? And deer just walking down the street, you know, 
Like we're about to go to Ozzy's and get some rolls here or something. And you go like creation, when man is removed, it's beautiful. Have you seen the photos of like Chernobyl? You have this epic tragedy. And so when humanity steps out and what happens, life has sprung up there again. Plants and animals and trees. And so you get a glimpse of the glory of God's beautiful, majestic creation as the mist settles on the mountains, as the sun rises and sets, as the waves crash and fall, as nature plays its natural course. You get a glimpse of it. Hold fast to that. These are the first fruits. These are the, these are the little moments of what is to come. You have these moments in your life from time to time, hopefully more often than not, but I, I know we all struggle. Those moments where you don't respond in your flesh, when you don't say what you want to say, when you go like, oh, you know what? Mm, uh, all right, God. Yeah, self-control. Okay. I'll, okay. I won't say it. Like, don't let that pass you by. Like, celebrate that. That's the first fruits. That's the work of the Spirit conforming you into the image of God. You're faced with a moment of temptation, and you go, No! I'm not doing that. You celebrate that. Like that's a great and a beautiful thing. That's the first fruits of the new creation. These little moments that you have that evidence that the spirit is at work in your life. It's the first fruits. Second thing I want to spend a little bit more time on is what is God doing in this moment and in this, in this tension between creation and waiting. Now, we all have these moments of groaning or suffering of pain and we go through different, different levels at different seasons of our life. What's our main weapon? Our main weapon to build faith and to hold on to hope. If you're going through something, your primary weapon is going to be your prayer life. It's going to be you praying and interceding and asking God for help. But what's the biggest problem with our prayer? We don't know what to pray. We don't know what we're asking for, and we don't know what to say half the time. Paul says it. We don't know how to pray as we ought. We think we know. What is prayer? Prayer is not getting God to bend his will to ours. Prayer is getting us to bend our will to him. It's not going, God, please, 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 please. If I beg you enough, you'll do it. It's seeking the will and the purposes of God for you and aligning yourself with that. But here's what shocks me so much. How easy we think it is to know the will of God. How even can a finite being know the will in the mind of an infinite one? Sometimes I think we take for, grand, for, for, we take for granted the grandeur and the majesty and the limitlessness of our God's knowledge and understanding of the world and how it works. I think we take for granted that most of God is unknowable to you. His ways are not your ways. His plans are not your plans. They are, they are higher. And so we go like, God, I need the help. But we don't really know what we're praying for. You know, there's a lot of things my kids don't know how to do. Which is okay, because they're only five, three, and one. So... This is not a criticism of my children. They're, they're, they're little. My children are great. Uh, my middle, who's three, is learning to brush his teeth on his own. And um, he tries, kind of. And I just want to do it for him. It would be so fast. We would just be done so quickly. And it would be done well. And we don't have to worry about the dentist bill to come later. Like, I could just do it. But he has to do it himself. 
He insists he does it himself. And when he brushes his teeth, it's more so like uh, shake a toothbrush in your mouth, spit and rinse and go, Daddy, did I do a good job? And what do you do? No, like, what, what do I do? I don't know what to say to him. So if you have advice, let me know after surface. Because most of the time I go, no, you did a bad job. We have to do it again. You didn't even brush your teeth at all. And then he throws a tantrum and he, okay. <laughs> I want to help him. I can help him. <clears throat> I can do it for him. But I've got to let him learn and grow into it. This is how we are with prayer. We like go like, God, deliver me. Give me the new job. Help it end. Whatever it is. Did I do a good job? And he's like, uh, let me help you. Let me help you with that. Because the spirit knows the perfect will of God. And so he prays things that we don't, that we don't pray. The spirit intercedes on our behalf. We pray for deliverance. But the spirit is praying for endurance. We pray, we pray for, for a financial blessing and God just, just, just take the debt away or just give me the raise and the increase in the spirit is whispering. Give them a heart of generosity. Teach them to be a faithful steward. Create in them a disciplined heart of gratitude. We pray for the temporary. The pain is now. The spirit prays for the eternal. His eyes are not on this temporary glimpse. They're on something much bigger. We pray for relief. The spirit prays for spiritual formation. That what God is designing this, allowing the situation to do in us would happen. And we're saying, God, just end it. And he's going, if I end it, you won't be what I need you to be. Let him be formed. Let him be formed. We pray, God, give me a word. Like, just give me one word. Give me the prophecy. Just speak, Lord. If you would just tell me what to do, I would know what to do, and I would do it. And the Spirit is going, teach him to be obedient to the words that you have spoken. Teach him to be obedient, Lord, to be faithful, to know and to follow and to do what you have already said. So often in moments of pain and suffering, we don't even have anything to pray. And so we don't because it's too hard. And you just go, I don't even have the energy or the desire to pray. I don't know what you think of when you think of suffering. Um, for whatever reason, I have this image always of when I'm going through a season of suffering or of pain or of difficulty. I have this image and this picture always of being in this chair Like when the world has pressed you down and the pain is coming wave after wave and the hope is lost and you're just going like, I don't see goodness and I don't see options and I don't see a way out, God. I hate everything. It's all too much and it's too hard. I just have this picture of being in this chair, of suffering. Have you been in this chair? Do you know this chair? I think we've all been in this chair at one point or another. Just the weight and the burden of the world and your futility and your ability to, to do or accomplish or to see or to understand, it just presses you down into this chair. There was a couple I was walking with a couple years ago, 
Um, I've walked with a number of couples. Some of them are here. It's not you. It's not. Um, and um, we were connecting for help in their marriage, trying to reignite, reconcile, just get this marriage like back on track, reinvigorated. And you give them all the classes and all the books, all the conferences. You give them all the meetings and the appointments and the counseling and the therapists. And you give them everything you've got. And it's just like nothing is producing anything. And all you want is for there to be life in this marriage. You just want to see it reconciled and restored to what God, God could have for it. And so in just a last-ditch effort, I go like, well, I'm just going to call this guy and just see if one-on-one, man-to-man, if I can just exhort him into God's purposes for him as a man and in this marriage. Maybe I, and this is part of the problem with, with being a preacher, is you think you can preach people into obedience. You think you can preach people into heart transformation. Which we just can't do. Let's make the word plain and let the Spirit do its work. But so maybe I can talk to him and maybe I can, you know, just, just, just give him my heart and just see if it will happen. And so I'm on the phone with him and I'm just, just you got to understand, like, I have the picture. I have the hope for what it could be. I've seen the life-giving marriage relationship when it's working well. I live in one now. In this, in this relationship where it's not about what I can get, but what I can give and how I can serve my wife and serve my family. And what does that cultivate in her? A desire to love and to serve and to honor, honor me. And when we live, remove the selfishness and you put the lordship of Christ at the center of what you're doing, you are in this environment, in this relationship that is so fulfilling and life-giving. And I'm going like, I want this for you. Like so badly, I want this for you. If you would just, just bend your will to Christ and allow him to have his way with you, you would see what I see. And I'm telling him and I'm talking to him about the new man he's got to become and all of this and the mantle of leadership and, and blah, 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 and everything. I'm just like pouring my heart out. And it was like I had said nothing to him. Okay. Yeah, thanks. And I got off the phone with him. I will never forget this because I was not ready for what was about to happen to me. I hung up the phone and the most intense grief came over me. I was pushed to my knees. And I hunched over my bed. You guys, I wept so hard. I'm not ashamed to admit that. We love you as our church, your pastors do. And when you hurt, we grieve because it's not what we want for you. It's not what God wants for you. And I sat in this chair of suffering and I just wept for this couple. I'm going, God, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you insert yourself? Like, why didn't you change his heart? Like, like why do they have to be a victim of divorce? Like, what? Like, Do you know where the spirit is when you're in the chair? Do you know what God is doing when you're sitting in the chair and you're groaning and you're grieving and you're lamenting the pain and the burdens of this world? Paul invites us 
to consider. That when we feel like God is farthest from us, and when God is silent, and when God is a million miles away, Paul invites us to consider that the Spirit of God has pulled up a chair next to you. And he has sat down with you. And he groans alongside you. But he doesn't pray the way you pray. God, why didn't you just do it? Like, why wasn't I enough? Like, why couldn't it been? And the Spirit prays the perfect will of God to the matters of the heart of the man and the woman that I have never seen. And he unwires things that only he who searches hearts can know. And we see in this passage a God who is not far from us in these moments, a God who is not distant from us in these moments, but a God who draws near. And he grieves as you grieve. And he groans as you groan. But he intercedes through your prayers. And his prayers are powerful and effective because they are the heart and the will and the mind of God. This is what the Spirit does for us. Sitting in this chair, Lamenting, grieving, experiencing the full emotions of life, right? That's what we're doing. Emotions are a gift from God. Living in this moment of pain-filled prayer is a critical part of your Christian life because the Spirit has a key role to play when you don't know what to pray, but you pray anyways. And when you allow yourself to attach and to connect and to feel, and to grieve, and to lament, and to, and to feel the burden and the weight, and you take that into prayer, that's a good thing, because then the Spirit can do what the Spirit is meant to do in these moments, which is to intercede for you and on your behalf. Because bad things happen, and they're going to continue to happen. It's the effect of human sin and disobedience exacted out on one another. It's It's millennia of pride and arrogance and pursuing lustful desires and the pursuit of power and the pursuit of self-preservation. This is what we do to one another. This is what happens. So bad things are going to happen. And with that, there's this dark, there's the evil force. Like there there just is a demonic force that is working against us to divide us and to, and to draw us away from God. But in these moments, We don't detach ourselves from it. We rush into them. Because that is where the Spirit can do the work that the Spirit needs to do. God may have allowed it, but why does God allow his creation to be subjected to futility? For the explicit purpose of redeeming it. For the hope of the glory that is to come. N.T. Wright said it like this. Inside the groaning creation... We have the groaning church. And inside the groaning church is the groaning spirit. Part of the vocation of the church is to be the place where God groans at the heart of the pain of the world. It's part of our, part of our job as the church. is to be the place where God can grieve and groan with us at the heart of the pain of the world. A quick note. 
then I'll close with three. Um, I don't think that unintelligible groaning, I don't think that's the same thing as we see as tongues is a different word in the Greek, stegnamos. It means to groan or to sigh. It's different than glossolalia that we see in like Acts. That is like a different tongue that you speak in. But regardless, it is a sound that God hears and God can interpret and God can answer and respond to. And that's where we, that's, that's where we put our focus. Um, I didn't meet with that couple after that. I prayed for them on occasion. Most of the time it was too difficult and a little bit too painful because you just wanted more than what you saw. And a few months later, uh, they called me and they let me know they had reconciled and the passion was back in their relationship and they were on a path of health. And I rejoice with you in that, fully knowing I had nothing to do with it. Like literally everything I tried fell short. All I did was sat on the floor of my room and cried. But the Spirit uses that. And that's where he works. That's where he works. And that's where he does what only, only he can do. Charles Spurgeon says, Men will never become great in theology until they become great in suffering. How you go through suffering lets me know what you believe about God. In this hope we were saved, Paul writes. The thing that we cannot see, the hope that we do not fully see, because hope is not something you can see, the hope that we have is in the perfect will of God being accomplished. Yet what is the one thing we don't fully know? It's the perfect will of God. Yet what is the one thing the Spirit who prays for us does? He knows the perfect will of God, which means we can place our trust and our hope in that. So what does that mean for us? What's the application? Three quick applications before we go. Number one, we ought to hold a right view of God. We ought to hold a right view of God, particularly when it comes to moments of pain and suffering and difficulty. Because we can look at the groaning frustration of the world and the painful circumstances through the eyes of a suffering spirit who does not depart from that or withdraw from it, but he binds himself to it. Where is God in this? God is where he has always been. His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is in the chair. He is alongside of you, with you in it. So what does that mean when someone in your life is in the chair? When someone you know, a neighbor, a friend, a family member is in the chair, what does that mean for you? It means you go get your chair and you pull up alongside of them and you grieve with them and you groan with them and you lament with them and you sit with them. Number two, we've got to look for the evidence. This is the first fruits. It can be difficult to see the picture of glory when we're confronted with the pain of reality. And I just admonish you and encourage you, whether that's journaling each day, whether that's um, uh, reflections in the morning or something you do, a conversation with your spouse or the person you're discipling, or maybe it's with your small group and you talk about it. This is why we share testimonies. We grab onto the first fruits, the evidence of the glory that is to come. Those are the savory little morsels of your faith that will feed you in the moments when it's so dark and difficult. Look for the evidence. And number three, don't forsake this chair. Don't avoid it and don't run from it. 
because glory happens in, in the chair. The Spirit pulls alongside of you. And as you pray and as you wonder and as you press in, the Spirit interprets, cleans that up, straightens it out, aligns it with the will of God, and intercedes on your behalf. This is the hope that we were saved in. A key part of our life is to live pain-filled prayers. And then we hold on to hope. Hope in what? Well, we're going to talk about it next week. But ultimately a hope that says all things work out for the good, for those who love God. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we love you. We adore you. We are grateful for you. That even in our moments of weakness, in our moments of lack, you draw near. You press in. You come close. And although we feel like you're a million miles away sometimes, we stand and remind ourselves of the truth revealed to us in Scripture that you're not God far away. You are God with us. You are God near to us. You are God who intercedes on our behalf with groanings too unintelligible for words. And we can hope perfectly in a perfect God who prays a perfect prayer, who intercedes on our behalf, who is doing things that we don't, that we don't see. So God, we thank you, we glorify you, we honor you tonight. We thank you, God. We just give glory to your name and we worship you for being a God who is with us in every moment of every day and in every situation. And I'll just encourage you, if you are in the chair tonight, if you're in that place of groaning and of suffering and of and of She's not sure where to go, what to do. I just encourage you tonight to come down front after this and pray with us. Our prayers may not be perfect. Our prayer team doesn't also know the will of God, but we can stand together and intercede on your behalf and stand with you as a community of disciples who are gathered around Jesus, pursuing him. That's who we are as a family here tonight. Church is so good to be with you. Let me encourage you to finish this series strong. There's two more weeks coming. God is good. We are on this trajectory down into the confidence that we have, an unshakable confidence in our God. Love to see you the next two weeks, church. Be blessed. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.